Amen. Hey, if you have your Bibles, grab those. And um, we're going to be in Judges. Judges, at the end of Judges chapter 6, going into Judges chapter 7. I want to talk about a man tonight by the name of Gideon. And uh, how many of you have ever heard of Gideon? Just raise your hand. All of you. Okay, good. I'm going to have to do too much background info tonight then. You know, we are living in a time where people look out at our... uh, at our country, and they begin to wonder if there's much hope for our land. You ever thought that? Anybody ever thought that? You begin to wonder if maybe God is beginning to judge our land rather than allow us to experience his blessing. And uh, I want to just share with you a few things that I learned. Um, I was in a conference uh, uh, about a month ago, and um, I heard from a man by the name of Bob Backey, and uh, he is a pastor in Minnesota, but he's also a revivalist and a, and a great historian. And I want to just take us back 220 years for just a moment before we jump into the text with Gideon. So I want to share with you two stories of hope tonight that really will show you that God is greater than any circumstance, anything that we're facing, anything going on in our country. We'll see that God is greater. So here's what I want you to do tonight. There's a little participation tonight. So turn to your neighbor and say, God is greater. That wasn't very loud, so say it with some affirmation. Turn to your neighbor and say, God is greater. greater. That's right, okay? So we're going to look at that, and that's really going to be the theme throughout this chapter in Judges. But I want to tell you some other things. If we go back to the 1790s of our country, I want you to think for just a few moments. And I want you to, to, I'm going to explain some things that were happening in 1790. But the things that I'm going to explain, you're going to look at and you're going to go, Wait a minute, that stuff is happening today. And and what I want you to understand is as bad as the nation was back then, and as bad as the nation is today, it was ripe for revival. It was ripe for a spiritual awakening. It was ripe for the church to get right with God and to experience revival and to begin to take that out into the country to see a great spiritual awakening. As a matter of fact, in the 1790s, we had just come through eight years of a war where we defeated an enemy uh, of the British, but yet after that, we were surrounded by three superpowers the French, the Spanish, and the British on, on our borders. They were threatening. As a matter of fact, when we look at this, as soon as we um, defeated them, all of their protection on our, our uh, merchant fleets to get products back to England to sell, to get products all over the world to try to continue to make money for our economy at this time, they took all that protection away from us. And so there was people coming in and, and pirates from Scandinavia when they would try to go the northern route. And so what they thought they would do is they would go the southern route and they would go up through Africa and up that way and, and try to get to Europe that way. As a matter of fact, what we find out is that 20%, now think of this for just a moment, 20% of the federal budget in 1790 was designated to Muslim pirates in North Africa that we had to pay ransoms to get our products and our people back. You thought terrorism was bad today? It was just as bad back then. Think about this for just a moment. We were nearly bankrupt as a nation. We had a great real estate collapse that took place in the 1790s right after this we had um, plagues and famines tens of hundreds were dying as a matter of fact they moved our capital to Trenton New Jersey for just a brief 
period of time because they thought that the plagues were coming from the Delaware River in Philadelphia. And D.C. hadn't been built yet. It was still basically a swamp. And so they were, uh, I want to say drain the swamp, but, I, you know, that's, a, that's another story. Um, but there were, there were still so many things going on. And all of these plagues, and as a matter of fact, because of these plagues were coming in, it, it affected the crops of, of what was going on that year. As a matter of fact, think about this. Crops were at an all-time high during this time in 1790. Food costs were as high as they had ever been at any period of our nation's history. And you look back and you go, well, that's kind of happening today. There was social unrest. I want you to understand the political rancor. Do you think that this was, I mean, does anybody think or, or can just raise their hand and say, this was the most divisive and absolutely just, um, uh, just, I guess the only word to say is just crazy election season that we've ever had since I've been alive. Anybody else? Can you say that? Can you a few of Okay, so see? Now, I want you to think of this. In the 1790s, both parties owned the newspapers and the media. Sound familiar to that? It was the nastiest election in America's history. It was also the closest election in America's history. The evangelicals banded together during this time, and they said, if we elect Thomas Jefferson, he is either the Antichrist or just like the Antichrist, that he'll usher in the second coming of Jesus, so we're going to put him in office. You think the political rancor was crazy today? It was just as crazy back then. They turned 2% of the election in the opposite way and guaranteed Thomas Jefferson the victory as president. There were anti-Christian demonstrations taking place on campus. They were burning Bibles. They were burning flags. They were burning all kinds of things because they did not like what was going on. There were empty churches. Pastors were desperate that their churches were empty. As a matter of fact, we read from one French journalist that made his way through Virginia out into the, to the frontier going out west. And he wrote this in his, um, in his memoirs. He said that he did not pass through the entire state of Virginia where he didn't see a single church that was either abandoned or in disrepair. Now, I... I when I read this stuff and I begin to understand this, and I go, God, if you sent a great spiritual awakening there, and our nation is in what it's in now, then there's hope. Also, human trafficking was in an all-time high with slavery, which it is today as well. And see, there's two ways that we can view history. We can view history that somehow we're just going to sit back and there's no hope. And we're going to do everything we can to protect our family and ride it out until Jesus comes back. Or we can do like so many of our brothers and sisters did during this time and say, God, we still believe that your greatest work is yet to be done. So there, there's really two ways we can look at it. As a matter of fact, and so I want you to think of this. <clears throat> really, revival had begun to start taking place in the New England states. And during the 1790s, the population of Kentucky was 70,000, okay? In 1800, that number jumped to 200,000. Wow, what happened? There was a great number of people that left the New England and moved into Kentucky and Tennessee and the Appalachia and began moving west. Bet you didn't think you were going to get a history lesson today, but I just want you to understand this. And there were five men 
They were called the Five Wild Men of the Cumberland. And it took place in Logan County, Kentucky. This revival that started. It was, it was, uh, it was supposed to be what they did is they went in and they began to set up uh, things and they had they had moved out of these revivals in the New England with with uh, uh, people like Jonathan Edwards and set under the teachings of George Whitfield and all these things and they began and they said we're going to evangelize the rest of America and so they moved into Kentucky and all of a sudden they set up little barriers and boundaries of you're going to take this many districts and you're going to take this many districts and you're going to take this many districts and here's what we find out in this in this in this movement in Cambridge, Kentucky, you can write that down. You can go, you can, you can research this, you can study this, whatever you want to do later on. I, I just want to just share this with you. In Cambridge, they, they had these prayer meetings where they would come together and they would agree together to seek the face of God and be desperate for God to move, like I preached on this morning. And then all of a sudden they did this for, for a few years. And then they said, you know what we've got to have? We've got to have our very first revival meeting like we did in New England. We got to pull a meeting together. So they did, and they expected 2,000 people to show up. You know how many people came to Cambridge, Kentucky? 30,000. They didn't have enough pastors. They said, okay, uh, Pastor, you're from this area. You take about 500 over there. You take about 500 over there. You, you take about 500 over there. They were preaching from trees. They were preaching from everywhere. They, the, most of the, the information that we get from this one revival movement that took place in Cane Ridge said that people could not come within about 10 miles of a radius around Cane Ridge without feeling the presence of God so great that they immediately were convicted of their sins. You see, when God shows up and God moves in, he can do incredible things. And if we see that that was the, what our nation was going through during that time, then we realize there's hope for our generation. If God could send a great spiritual awakening, thousands of churches, thousands of churches were planted because of that. Thousands of people went into the mission field because of that one movement in Cambridge, Kentucky. I bet you never even heard of it, have you? I never have. I was blown away. And the more that I realized that there is that was going on in that generation, the more hope I have for my generation. Because I look up and, and you know what I think, and, and I'm just going to level with you. I think, what's the church going to look like in 30 years when all of our senior saints who have given their life and devoted their life to Christ and the church, and now we have a generation of people coming up that, that, that do not understand loyalty when it comes to church, and they don't understand loyalty in a lot of areas, but what's the church going to look like? And is there really even any need for us to really get, get motivated about trying to do something for this generation? And this really gave me hope. This Th that really gave me hope, and I want you to understand is that we can be hopeful. And I want to show you a story as well in Scripture in Judges chapter 7. It was a period of Israel's history that was one of an all-time low. See, Joshua's generation had died, but it had been 167 years since Joshua's generation had died. And there's a period, and there's a pattern of, of this in Judges. Judges, to me, is one of the saddest books in all of Scripture. Because there's this pattern of God's people beginning to fall into sin. 
and, and they fall more into sin and more into idolatry until God allows someone to come in and to oppress them or to control them or rule over them and all of these things. And then they begin to cry out for God, but it's not a cry of repentance. It's just, God, get us out of this mess. And they do it over and over and over and over, and God delivers them, and then he gives the land peace, and then the people fall right back into it. And then God delivers them. And you would think by this time, they're going to say, you know what? Maybe we need to just worship the Lord, but they don't. 167 years of this. And God shows up one day, the angel of the Lord shows up, a pre-incarnate representation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself shows up one day and there's a man threshing wheat in a wine press. And you don't thresh wheat in a wine press. You thresh wheat out in the open so that when you throw it up in the air, the wind takes the chaff and blows it away and leaves the wheat. But Gideon's literally in a basically like a hole in a rock in a cave probably somewhere threshing wheat because there's an army called the Midianites that has taken everything they have. For seven years, they've worked for their crops. They've worked hard to produce things for their family. In seven years, every time there's a harvest, Midian comes in and takes everything that they want. It would literally be like, I'm giving my son Luke a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and someone comes in and says, no, no, we'll take that. He don't need that. He can starve. He can die. Now that would absolutely infuriate me. And Gideon is so <laughs> scared, and, he, and God shows up and calls him a mighty warrior. The only time that, that that phrase is used, mighty warrior, is when they're marching into the teeth of the battle. But Gideon's hiding out in the wine press. And God says, look, look with me in chapter 6 real quick, and then we'll jump to chapter 7. <clears throat> God tells him he's going to use him to deliver them from the power of Midian. Verse 15, he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? My family is the weakest of the weakest tribe of Israel, called Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my house. But I will be with you, the Lord said to him. You will strike Midian down as if it were one man. Now let me catch up to speed. We're right in the seventh chapter when we jump in here. Gideon has made it very clear, God has made it very clear to Gideon that it's him who is speaking to Gideon. He, he supernaturally tells him to do all these things and Gideon follows through and God makes it abundantly clear who it is that's speaking with him. And then God tells Gideon to go and tear down his father's altar to Baal. Gideon's daddy was in the, the idol worship business and he had a little uh, 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 job on the side where they would worship Baal and he tells him to go and tear it down and Gideon goes and tears it down and the men of the city want to take his life. And when we get to chapter 6 and 36, this is where we're at. God has told Gideon to go. God has told Gideon to do several things and Gideon has been obedient. But turn to your neighbor and say, God is greater. There you go. Now let's look at it. Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you said, I will put a fleece of wool here on the threshing floor. If dew is only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, I will know that you will deliver Israel by my strength, as you said. And that is what happened. Imagine that, that God would come through on his word. When he got up early in the morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung the dew out of it, filling a bowl with water. Gideon then said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me speak one more time. 
Please allow me to make one more test with the fleece. Let it remain dry and the dew be all over the ground. That night, God did as Gideon requested. Only the fleece was dry and dew was all over the ground. Now, there's certain things that we see here in this scripture, and I want to just share this with you. There's two viewpoints of this whole thing with the fleece. Some people will say, you know, that's how I'm going to answer prayer. I'm just going to throw all this out for God and let God answer it. And I really don't think that's what God was wanting. I think Gideon, what Gideon is doing is he's wanting a deeper revelation of who God is. Yes, God, you've told me to go, but I want to know more of who you are. I want to know more of who you are. Because, listen, if God was going to condemn his faith, he would have just said, Gideon, go. But he didn't. He answers him two times. His weak faith. His, and, and y'all ever been here where you go, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? I mean, we have all experienced that. Here's the first thing that God is greater. God is greater than our uncertainty. God is greater than our uncertainty. God has asked Gideon to go do something, and Gideon is uncertain of it. Gideon is struggling with this. And notice what Gideon asked God to do. He asked him to do something with rain. With the weather, with water. Whose altar did he just tear down? Baal's. The God of rain. And and Gideon is wanting a deeper picture of who God is. And God shows up twice and says, okay, I'm going to give you exactly what you're asking for. God is greater than our uncertainty. When God asks us to do something and God sends us to carry something out, we need to understand that even in our weak faith, God can still work in our life. He's greater than our uncertainty. And this is what we see in Gideon. He is seeking a bigger picture of who God is. And notice that God responds twice. Go on with me. I want you to see the second thing. I've got four of these tonight. And if you want to write this down. First, God is greater than our uncertainty. Next is God is greater than our weakness. Look at this. Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and everyone who was with him got up early and camped beside the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them below the hill of Moreh in the valley. You're talking maybe, maybe four miles. Not a lot of distance. If you know anything about Israel, the Jezreel Valley comes off the Sea of Galilee and works its way um, west toward the Mediterranean. And, and what you have is the Jezreel Valley naturally runs in to the Valley of Megiddo. You know it as the Valley of Armageddon. And, and this is where they are at. They are in Israel's, what was known back then, as Israel's breadbasket. It is super rich and green and lush. And it is just beautiful in the northern part of Israel. And that is where they are. And they're about four miles, maybe six miles in between each other. And it says this. Look what it says in verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many people for me to hand the Midianites over to you, or else Israel might brag... I did it myself. Now, at this point, Gideon has 32,000 men. 32,000 have joined him to go up against Midian. What, what the Bible says, their camels were, in, were innumerable. And, and they had what we later on see in the 8th chapter, about 135,000 strong. And God says, you're too great at 32,000. This second verse is is the absolute just 
message tonight, if you just want to circle it, it's the message of this chapter. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many people for me to hand the Midianites over to you, or else Israel might brag, I did it myself. Doesn't that sound like us sometimes? God is greater than our weakness. Now announce in the presence of the people, whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 of the people turned back, but 10,000 remained. So Gideon's leading this effort. And all of a sudden he's like, yeah, I've got 32,000. And God's like, no, 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 you're too big. Tell them if they're afraid to turn back. And 22,000 leave. How do you think you're feeling if you're Gideon? Uh, well, maybe we can take these 10,000 and work it out. Then the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many people. What? That's what I would think. I mean, for, they don't have big weaponry. They might have really short swords that they can use at this point. But they are impoverished. They have no money. The Midianites have taken everything from them. They've barely been able to stay alive at this point. Look what he says. There's still too many people. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. If I say to you, this one can go with you, he can go. But if I say about anyone, this one cannot go with you, he cannot go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, Separate who laps water with his tongue like a dog. Do the same with everyone who kneels to drink. The number of those who lapped with their hands to their mouth was 300 men. And all the rest of the people knelt to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and hand the Midianites over to you. But everyone else is to go home. So Gideon sent all the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took the people's provisions and their trumpets. The camp of Midian was below him in the valley. In a matter of moments, I want you to think about this, y'all. In a matter of moments, God is taking Gideon to where he feels like, well, maybe I can lead this. I got 32,000. Maybe we can take this 135,000. In a matter of moments, God gives Gideon a 99% reduction. In a matter of moments. But God is greater than our weakness. Now jump with me in your, in your, in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to show you something. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians <clears throat> Chapter 12, in the middle of verse 7. Look at what Paul says to the church at Corinth. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a a messenger of Satan to torment me, so I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, For power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So because of Christ, I am pleased in weaknesses, in insults, in catastrophes, in persecutions, and in pressures. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, God doesn't work in spite of our weakness. He works because of it. Think about this for just a moment. This is how people normally grow in their relationship with Christ. 
is that they come to a place in time where they admit that they haven't got a clue about this Christian life. And God, you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to live it in me. You're going to have to live it through me. Because I can't do anything. I am weak. But yes, you are strong. God works in our weaknesses. God is greater than our weaknesses. And here's what you're thinking tonight. Well, what might God want to do with me because I've got this or I've got this or I've got this? God may want to take you and show his glory through your weakness. And that his power be perfected through your weakness. God is greater than our weaknesses. Think about this for just a moment. 99% reduction, 300 men to 135,000 men. Are you ready to go to war with those numbers? Well, it'd be hard for me, wouldn't it be you? Third thing, God is greater than our fear. Go on and look at this with me. That night the Lord said to him, Get up and go into the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are, here's the word, afraid to go to the camp, go with Pura, your servant. Listen to what they say, and then you will be strengthened to go to the camp. So he went with Purah, his servant, to the outside of the troops who were in the camp. Now the Midianites, Amalekites, and all the Ketamites had settled down in the valley like a swarm of locusts, and their camels were as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon arrived there was a man telling his friend about a dream. He said, listen, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp, struck a tent, and it fell. The loaf turned the tent upside down so that it collapsed. And his friend answered, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has handed the entire Midianite camp over to him. Whoa, what? This just blows my mind when I read this. Think about this for just a moment. We take scripture and we read it and we don't put our, our, ourselves in the place of Gideon. Gideon is afraid. Gideon has had weak faith up to this point. He's uncertain. God is wanting to use his weakness. And God says, listen, get up. Go into the camp. I've handed it over to you. But if you're afraid, just take your servant and go. God didn't tell him where to go, what part of the camp, any of these things. And he goes to the camp. He's had to hide out probably. He's probably had to, to try to sneak his way in there. And all of a sudden he overhears something. A conversation about some piece of barley bread knocking a tent over. They're like, what is this? And the guy says, this has got to be Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has handed the entire Midianite camp over to him. I want you to think for just this moment. As in, God is greater than our fear. Gideon is still unsure. He's still afraid. But God is the great reassurer. Even in the midst of our fear, cry out to him. Even when we feel like, God, you, you told me to do this and things just aren't looking. I, I'm worried. I'm upset. I'm, I'm fearful. It doesn't have to be fear, fearful for your life. It can be fearful for a lot of things. But we don't have to fear. God hasn't given us that spirit. And so think about this for just a moment. God reassures us through his word. God reassures us through other people. 
Do you think it was just some coincidence that Gideon happens to find the one guy that had this dream that all of a sudden that says his name and says that, that this is Gideon, son of Joash and, and the Israelite, and God's going to hand the entire camp over to him? Do you think that that's just some coincidence? No. And in the midst of his fear, God was still reassuring him every step of the way, and God reassures us through our circumstances. I'll give you a story. The other day I was talking with a, a gentleman, and, and we were in Deacon's meeting, and I just came up to talk with him, and we were just kind of having small chat, and then all of a sudden he looked at me and he said, when's the last time you had a date with your wife since your, since your uh, daughter was born? And I thought about looking back at him and saying, well, that's none of your business. You know, I mean, that's what I thought about saying. But you know what? God had really been laying that on my heart in my devotional time. And, and just like, you know, you're, you're neglecting this relationship because you're in this season. And you're blaming it on this season instead of being, you know, active in this. And he just steps up and he goes, you know what? Hey, when's the last time you had a date with your wife since your daughter was born? And I thought, this is, this is the Lord. And so we got to talking. God reassures us. And everything we face, he speaks through his word, he speaks through his church, he speaks through his Holy Spirit. And, and we sometimes forget that, but God is greater than anything that we are facing. Do you get the point? God's greater? Let's look at the next thing that God's greater than, the very last thing, and then I'm going to be done. God is greater than our enemies. Look at this in verse 15. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed and worshipped. Notice that when something comes to us and God reassures us, instead of just letting that moment pass and letting that moment just, thank you God for that, and rushing off to do whatever it is that God has called us to do or God's told us to do, may we stop or maybe if we, we don't have the time at that moment to come back and worship and thank God for what he's done in our life. To give him the praise and the glory. Because he didn't have to speak to us one iota. God is still God. He doesn't need humanity whatsoever. But he chose to create us so that we would bring him honor and glory. And what a gift. Look what he says. He returned to Israel's camp and said, Get up, for the Lord has handed the Midianite camp over to you. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies and gave each of the men a trumpet in one hand and an empty pitcher with a torch inside it in the other. Now, how many of you have we said, We're getting ready to go fight ISIS, boys. I got a trumpet for you and, 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 a, and, a, and a torch for you, and that's all you get. You ready? 300 against 135,000. I'm thinking in this moment, and I'm reading this scripture going, these men had so much incredible faith, and Gideon is telling them these things, but I would still be going, you know, God, are you sure? I mean, trumpets and, and torches? Listen to what it says. Verse 17, watch me, he said, and do the same. When I come to the outpost of the camp, do as I do. When I and everyone with me blow uh, our trumpets, you are also to blow your trumpets all around the camp. Then you will say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men who were with him went to the outposts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch after the sentries had been stationed. They blew their trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. 
The three companies blew their trumpets and shattered their pitchers. They held their torches in their left hand and their trumpets in their right hands and shouted, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Now I want you to circle this next verse. Each Israelite took his position around the camp. Now think about this for just a moment. Neyland Stadium will hold, if you, if you stack them in there high, will hold 102,000. They had 135,000, and there were no bleachers. So can you imagine if you've got 300 men, and you're circling an entire camp, how many deep are you? One. How far away is your next guy in your company? What incredible faith do these guys possess when you see this? And there's 135,000, and they are going to encircle the camp in three, um, basically, companies. And it says that they all took their positions. What great faith. There was no one, if they died, to come right behind them during this time like they, they were used to in warfare. They had to hold their own position. And the entire Midianite army fled and carried out as they ran. When Gideon's men blew their 300 trumpets, the Lord set the swords of each man in the army against each other. They fled to Beth Shittah in the direction of Zerorah as far as the border of, I don't even want to say that name, near Taboth. Then the men of Israel were called from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, and they pursued the Midianites. Now think about this for just a moment. God has shown Gideon in this moment that he is greater than their enemies. Well, let me just share with you tonight one thing. Satan has every weapon that he wants to throw against God's children. Satan has every uh, demon under a rock everywhere we go trying to trip us up and and take us down and make us a, a reproach against the name of God, destroy our testimony, destroy our witness, destroy our families, destroy everything. But Romans 6 tells us that his weapons have been rendered inoperative against children of God. Every weapon that you think, I mean, you look at this and I look at this and I go 135,000. And that's exactly how some of us look at Satan and everything he throws in our, our way. And we go, God, there's no way I can do this. But you know what Ephesians tells you to do? And I've been reminded of this over and over lately. It doesn't tell you to win the victory. It tells you to stand. You don't have to win, you stand and let God fight through you. You be willing to stand and say, God, I'm going to stand for you. I'm going to stand for your word. I'm going to stand for you and watch God fight through you. God is greater than our enemies. And no matter what enemy comes against us, it could be from the state one day coming in and saying, you know what, you're going to have to shut this church down and you're not talking about this anymore. You know what? God is greater than any enemy that comes against him. No weapon formed against us shall prosper, church. None. God is greater than our enemies. In a moment, God turned every one of these men against each other. Why? Verse 2 told us. He stripped them down to a point. To where no one could look at that situation and say, you know what, we did it. Well, we were kind of outnumbered a little bit, but you know what, I mean, we just got tough. You carried trumpets and torches into a battle with 135,000 with 300 men. God gave you the victory. 
Sometimes God wants to take us down and strip us down in order so that we can see that he's greater. Because if, if he doesn't, we have a hard time with verse 2 where we want to take the credit for ourselves. We will say, well, you know I did this. Well, it was my hard work that did that. Well, it was my hard work that got me where I was at. Listen, work is a gift of God. If God wanted to cripple you tomorrow and allow it to happen, he could. If God gives you the breath of life so that you can work, it's a gift of his grace. If he gives you the ability to work with your hands, it's a gift of his grace. If he gives you the ability to do things with your mind, it's a gift of his grace. Everything that we have in this life is not because of us, it's because of the grace of God. God is greater. Turn to your neighbor and say it again. Amen. Elaine, will you come and Philip come and, and play something tonight? I just, I just wanted to encourage you tonight. No matter what you face, no matter what you think, I want you to just think right now. What is that one thing that you're asking God to do and it just seems like he's silent on? What's the one area in your life that you've begun crying out to God and you just feel like, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what our family's going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. Maybe it's salvation for a loved one. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a bill that needs to be paid. Maybe it's a debt you got yourself into. Maybe it's uh, uh, something for your children or grandchildren. I don't know. But I do know this. God is greater than your uncertainty in this moment right now. God is greater than your weakness. When you feel like there's no way that I can... I, I can figure this out. You can't. God's wanting to strip you down to a point to where you are going to be desperate for him. Because that's what he wants. And God is greater than your fear. So no matter what comes in your mind and that Satan wants to use to try to tear against you and to pull you down and to, to pull you apart and to think that I don't know what we're going to do. There's no hope. God's greater than your fear. And God is greater than your enemy. Everything that you will face in this life, if you are a child of God, I want you to know, you have hope. God's greater. And praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us a living hope and a new life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? And he's placed us into an inheritance that is imperishable, incorruptible, and unfading, and it's kept in heaven for us.